Hey Church of the Beloved, thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Today's message is brought to us by our interim senior pastor, Abe Lee. He is preaching from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. All right, let's get into this. So uh, I'll say, say this. When I was a kid growing up back in the late 70s, early 80s, <clears throat> I remember there were these cassette tapes that I had uh, that my mom and dad bought for me when I was a little kid for me and my little brother. They were like, it was like a 12-volume collection, and they, they, they were in these clamshell cases. Uh, there were 12 cassettes in each one. I, I remember very uh, distinctly. Each tape was about an hour long, 30 minutes on each side. I think it was called like Uncle Dan and Aunt Sue's Bible Story Hour or something like that. Basically, each side had a, a, a different story about faith lived out, right? It's, if you're familiar, Derek and Anna, they have a com- they used to have, I think they're going to re- reboot it, but a comedy podcast where they have like voice actors and they do radio skits, sound effects. That's basically what it was, but on tape. And I remember there are two stories that have stuck with me over 40 years later, right? Uh, one was uh, this, the daughter of a farmer uh, who asked her dad why he wasn't carrying an umbrella after he had just prayed for rain, right? Basically asking the question, are you really trusting God to answer your prayers if you aren't living like you really trust in God? Uh, a little life lesson there. And the, the other story that really has stuck in my head over the years is this one of a, a, a guy, a cop, who kept a promise to his friend who happened to be a criminal, a promise that they had made to each other as children, even though it would cost him his career as a cop. That one is based on Psalm chapter 15, where it says, blessed is the man who swears to his own hurt. When I heard this, I was learning it in King James Version. I don't know if NIV was even a thing when I was listening to this as a kid. And I was, as I was reading through today's letter, this letter from Paul to Titus, those old-timey cassette tapes, they, they came to mind for me. I, I had this image of me as a kid. I was uh, sitting underneath the dining room table in my parents' two-room apartment in Westridge. Uh, that's, it would have to be underneath the dining room table because we only had one air conditioner, and that's the only place the air would come, and this is the only way to stay cool. Uh, and I, I remember devouring those tapes and listening to them on our not-so-portable, portable cassette player because it was like this big. I had to flip over the tape every 30 minutes because back in the day, binge listening, it took work. I'm like binge-watching where you just let it go. Um, I'll tell you, this letter brought me back to those stories because... I think that's what this letter is trying to do for us, to teach us. It's a call out by Paul to Titus to not only believe with our mouths and with our minds, but to, to live that belief, to, to live that faith out with our lives. It says in James chapter 2, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you mine. I'll show you my faith by my works. Uh, for, <clears throat> for those of you who are just joining us for the first time in person or uh, maybe online, let me tell you, uh, as I usually do, let me tell you what we've been doing. We've been looking at these, what we call letters from a friend, letters from Paul to the Galatians, to the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, to the Thessalonians, as well as to Timothy, today Titus, and in a few weeks, Philemon. And we've been looking at these letters since, since March, 
And we, we kicked off this sermon series back in March by looking at Paul's life first and how his life reminds us that absolutely no one, not even him, was, is beyond God's reach. Galatians tells us of our unity in our Christian liberty as brothers and sisters. Ephesians, our unity in our diversity. Philippians is our unity in our humility. Colossians, our unity as a family that lives as Christ loves. First Thessalonians, when we looked at that, it was really about the power of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us even through affliction. And Second Thessalonians was a call to work, to do good, to pray while we wait, while we wait for Jesus to come back. A few weeks ago, we looked at First Timothy and how pastors, we are not that special. We're just examples of what we are all called to be. We are all called to be spirit-filled disciples transformed by the gospel. Ones who know that they are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. And then last week, we looked at 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy calls us to be saturated by Scripture so that we can be sanctified by our Savior. That's a quick summary of where we've been so far. And the one big idea, the theme I really want to focus on today in this letter is Paul's encouragement to Titus and Paul's encouragement to us as well to have a right doctrine that leads to a right life. Or... For our Wheatonites, uh, as some of them, as specifically one person likes to always say, orthopraxy requires orthodoxy. Okay, now in case you all aren't aware, <clears throat> I did not go to seminary. I didn't even go to a Christian school like Moody or Wheaton. Uh, so my education comes from the school of life, or as some like to call it, the school of hard knocks, right? So for me, just hours and hours of me intentionally wanting to understand my faith, the gospel, by studying the gospel. And I thank God has led me to where I am today, a pastor here for our beloved family. And I thank God also for online resources, good teachers, good preachers, and a very, very patient wife. Because um, I wake up really way too early for most humans to get up so I can do that but I tell you because I don't have a traditional theological education when folks use big theological words like you know propitiation or orthopraxy or manumission or immutability I have no clue I have to thank God for Google I Google them because I, I want what they're talking about or I'll ask orthopraxy is one of those words right when it was first mentioned to me um, and I'll tell you the simplest definition that I could find uh, of what orthopraxy is, I think, is this. It means common practice. Or cor not, some, not common, correct practice. Now, orthodoxy, on the other side, is a correct belief, a correct doctrine. If you want to know what those other words mean, I mean, I'm happy to talk to you about it. You know, we've got Clint here, too. You can ask him, or you can just Google them. Uh, I don't always trust Google, but you can try. But today's main point is this. Orthopraxy requires orthodoxy. In other words, we are called to actively engage in good works and to live out a correct practice because of our faith, because of our faith in Christ and because of his redemptive work on the cross. But before we get too deep into that one main point that I want to focus on, I do want to introduce, uh, address one thing, what is some people like to call one of our spicy passages that Paul shares here. And I want to read to you from the Christian Standard Bible. Paul, in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, says to Titus, Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God, our Savior, in everything. 
The ESV uses a translation bondservant, maybe a little less controversial, but it's the same thing. And it's very easy to look at this passage, and there's a similar one in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Again, I'm going to read from the CSV. It says, all who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. I'll say, I think it would be very easy for someone who's, uh, to read these passages and see a God who supports slavery. I mean, I mean I, I, personally, I think why Paul couldn't you just say outright, slavery is bad, it's evil, it's wrong, it's, we need to stop it. My hope and my goal as your pastor is to not ignore the hard, not ignore the spicy passages. My hope is to provide you the tools that maybe help you better understand those passages as you consider what it is God's trying to communicate through his scripture so that we can live lives, good lives for God's glory. And so I want to do that right now by reframing this passage today. And turn to, if you could, Matthew, if you have your Bible with you, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 to 9. It's a story of the Pharisees. They're trying to trip up, trip up Jesus. And this time it says a, with a question about divorce. It says this. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and, and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let, let no one separate. Why then, they asked him, did Moses command us to give divorce papers and to send her away? He told them, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. In Jesus' response, he did not accept the premise of the Pharisees. He did not accept the premise of their question. See, the Pharisees were starting from the wrong place. The question they were asking, and the question that it shouldn't have been, when does God allow divorce? Now, the first question that they, and hopefully the first question that we should be asking is, what was and what is God's intent, his desire? See, we are all made in the image of God. We are the imago Dei. Jesus redirects the attention of the Pharisees away from the rules to the ruler, away from the commands given after the fall to the creator who created it all. Just reading verses 4 to 6 again, it says, Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That was his intent. That was his desire. The question I should be asking is not, what can I get away with? What's my limit? The question that I should be asking, the question that should be on the table is, what does, God's, what does God desire of me? 
and see the same exegetical, which, by the way, exegetical is just a fancy word, way of saying, like, uh, critical interpretation, but the same exegetical process, the same foundational question that Jesus asked, this is how we should be and how we need to be looking at the passages like this spicy one on slavery. See, the, these rules and these explanations of how slaves and their masters should behave, they were not a tacit approval of the practice of slavery. They were not then, they are not now. Just like Moses introduced the divorce laws because, unfortunately, people were and are so broken and so unable and so unwilling and so unrelenting in their desire to put themselves before their God and God's design, these slavery laws were put in place to mitigate and to minimize the damage that could be done by broken people. But it was never what God intended. It was never what God designed. So the question that we should be asking, the question that we should ask when we read verses like this is not what is allowed. We need to reframe the question, just like Jesus did. And, and, and go back to Genesis. Go back to the beginning. We, we need to ask, what is this cosmic temple that God created in six days supposed to be like? What did God design? What was God's intent? We need to reframe the question just like Jesus did and go to the end of the story to look at the, the revelation and ask, what is God's intent? Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. This is what it says there. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one can number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. Every nation, tribe, language. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 and 4. This is what it says there. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them. And will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Our Father in heaven never intended for his beloved to desire, to support, to work for things like divorce, like slavery, like racism, like sexism. That was never his intention. And so we cannot, as his beloved, allow for the twisting of scripture to convince people otherwise. So when reading spicy passages like this one, we need to consider what Jesus' exegetical process was. Jesus did not automatically accept the premise of the question. Instead, Jesus turned the question around to consider the purpose of the creator. And now we turn, I just wanted to do that little tangent, but now we turn to today's one point that I want to focus on, that, that we have to have the right belief to have the right behavior, the correct, that correct convictions result in correct actions, or orthopaxy requires orthodoxy. Now, I, I want to share a story. I did get permission. One of the deacons in training right now is Adam. Um, and... Adam, he shared with me how he decided to become a vegetarian. Basically, what he saw was this cruel, the cruelty towards animals who were being slaughtered for, well, my dinner. And he thought, I can't support that practice. You know, his, his conviction was that animals, 
should not be killed inhumanely for a meal, for my meal. So, so his action was to stop being a reason for that to happen. And I love his conviction. And I love that his conviction led to that action. And I told him that. But I also told him, no offense, but I'm allergic to vegetables and anything that is healthy. So I'm going to continue to eat my be carnivorous in every possible way. Um, but I love that his belief resulted in his behavior. So what I want to do is I want to spend the rest of this morning uh, reminding, or maybe for some, introducing uh, to ourselves what is this right religion that I and that Paul, our Paul, as well as the Apostle Paul, what, what is this right religion that we're talking about, right? And then we're going to consider what is this right living that we are called to do. And I want to start with verse 5 from what was read to, uh, today. Is then he, Jesus, saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We have a, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we have a baptism service, as I mentioned, next week, right? Three, maybe four of our family here in Christ have decided that they want to publicly proclaim this belief that the Son of God came down to earth to die on a cross so that we would not have to pay the price for our sin. And that in Jesus' resurrection, these sisters and brothers know that they are made new in Christ alone and now will participate in an external exhibition of their internal transformation. And at the heart of this very holy ritual is an understanding that it is not baptism that redeems us. Not at all. It is, it's not anything that we have done. It's not anything that we can do. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but it's all according to God's mercy alone. It is by the work of Jesus Christ alone that we are redeemed. It is by the effort of the Holy Spirit within us that we are able to call ourselves beloved. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Uh, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Then we have in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. And then you could turn to chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It says this, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift, God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. See, orthodoxy, or the correct understanding of our foundational belief system, our doctrine, is this. It is that Holy Scripture, or the Bible, is God's inspired word. This is the only inerrant, inerrant or incapable of being wrong. It's the only inerrant, all-sufficient, and final authority for us, for the church. And, and this Scripture tells us that Christ alone is how we, as, as sinful, broken people, how we can be seen as holy and justified and righteous in God's eyes. The redemption promise of Christ applies to you and to me by faith alone because of God's grace alone. And all of this results in God receiving all the glory 
for our salvation. See, Scripture alone brings us to understand that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are saved for God's glory alone. This, that's orthodoxy. This is the truth that God has provided us in Scripture. This is the right doctrine that we believe and that we cling to. In verses 4 to 7, it says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. And so as a result of this truth, we are called to now live it out. Verse 8 says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Suzette and I, we have had the privilege, and I, and I call it a privilege because it's something that we are very intentional about doing and we love to do. Well, sometimes we just like to do it, but it's, we, we do premarital counseling. Uh, we've had the privilege to do it for a number of young couples uh, over the past few years. I think over... 20, we've kind of lost count of how many different couples that we've had the chance to walk with. We love and we care for and we pray for each of them regularly. And I asked permission to tell the story of one of those couples here at Church of the Beloved, Josh and Lydia Parks. For those of you who are not aware, Josh serves on our board of directors. Uh, Lydia is part of our beloved kids ministry, so she's not here today. I think um, she's, she'll hopefully hear this her name, shout out later. Anyway, while meeting with them um, in premarital counseling, they explained to us about their decision not to live together and to have sex before marriage. You know, they, they talked about it for us. We didn't ask, they told us. For them, they believed and understood the sanctity of the covenant relationship that they were entering into. And they wanted to keep that part sacred because it's something that God had intended and God had designed to be a part of their union together, their public covenant promise to each other. Now, it's, it's not that they were not already wholly devoted and wholly committed to each other. They absolutely and very obviously were 100% committed to one another. It was because they understood that until that public proclamation of their private devotion to one another, they wanted to save that gift to each other until that day. And it was their opportunity to put into practice what they understood Scripture had shown them. They wanted their right beliefs to drive right actions and through that to be an example and a testimony to all of those around them, their friends, most of whom could not understand why they would bother living that way. It didn't make sense to them. And that devotion to God first while still being devoted to each other, it is that devotion to living as God intended for them that, that has opened up opportunities to have conversations, to bring God all the glory, to introduce their friends to the Savior. I should mention, if you're not aware, it was exceptionally difficult for them to do this, to keep that promise 
because their wedding day had to be delayed and then delayed and then delayed again because of COVID. Uh, but I thank God, I thank you, Josh and Lydia, for living that example out because as it says in verse 8, the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. See, the good works that Josh and Lyd devoted themselves to were excellent and profitable to their friends, to their family around them, opening up opportunities for God to receive all the glory, opening up opportunities for the body of Christ to be encouraged by them, opening up opportunities for the chosen of God to learn about God. Going back a little bit, in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 of today's text, tells us what we are called to do because of our beliefs. And I want to say that very clearly. It's a call to action because of our redemption. It's not a call to action to be redeemed. And here, Paul tells Titus, starting with verse 1, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing goodness or gentleness to all people. Another way, for me at least, when I was thinking reading through this that I, I, I view it, is if we are not called to be hyphenated Christians. And let me explain myself. There was a time, uh, I think especially in the 80s, that, that, that everyone was a hyphenated American. If you're not aware, I am a Korean American. Uh, Pastor Otua, uh, who I shared about earlier in our praise report, he's African American. Jonah is just an awesome American. Um, but my, sorry, my hyphenated status, you really are. My hyphenated status, it became very apparent to me and to my wife, Suzette, when we were traveling once to Morocco, a, lot, a long time ago. We took a boat from Spain to the continent of Africa, which is awesome. If you ever get a chance to do it, you should. But when I, I remember stepping to the immigration table. Uh, it was on the boat, and uh, the guy who looked at my visa application, and he asked me what I really was. I said, what do you mean? I'm American. That's what I'd written on my visa application. That's what my passport said. That's what my birth certificate proves. I'm American, right? I could have said, you know, I'm Chicagoan, but based on my experience, he probably didn't know where Chicago was. So he looked at me again and then asked again, no, where are you really from? Now again, annoyed. Um, I'm from America, born and raised. He looked at me again. He looked at my visa took out his pen, crossed off American, wrote Chinese. Dude didn't even get my country of origin correct. I mean, I was livid. I was so angry. Suzette had to bring me down. Uh, just Anyway, uh, this agent could not see me as an Asian American. This agent could not even see me as an American. He saw me just as Asian. See, in our day-to-day life, I'll tell you this, I think we often segregate our faith into a little box, right? My Christianness, it only comes out when I'm at church or at small group or having dinner or a double date with the pastor. But, but other times, that's when the other self comes out, the fun one, the rock climber self, the consultant self, the scientist self. So we live hyphenated lives. You know, I'm a programmer who happens to be a Christian. I'm not a programmer. But I'm a programmer who happens to be a Christian. I'm a doctor that happens to be a Christian. But see, Paul, when he tells Titus to be ready for every good work, 
He's saying, I think, be a follower of our Savior first and foremost and always. It's a call to me to be a Christian who happens to work for a software company. It's a call for you to first be a Christian who, who happens to run marathons. See, if you're living a hyphenated life right now, which part of that life is actually coming first? Christ or the other one? Verse 1 says, be ready for every good work. Verse 8 says, devote yourselves or devote themselves to good work. See, Paul is telling us that as a result of our faith in sound doctrine, because we understand, because we believe, because we proclaim that it is by God's grace alone that my faith alone saves, in Christ alone saves me from eternity apart from God. Because of this, I have to, I must live that belief out. You know, like those stories I mentioned earlier or that I listened to as a child. If I'm going to pray for rain and, and have faith, carry an umbrella. If the Bible teaches that sex is something reserved for my future spouse, save that gift. If Christ has called us to care for the widows and the orphans, then go to Africa. Volunteer with a youth mentor program. Do something. See, we're called to be ready and to devote ourselves to good work because that good work, because of the good work that was already done for me, that was done for you. As you take the time, if you look at Scripture, throughout Scripture, you see that it does show us what good works as a result of right doctrine looks like. And what that specifically looks like, I'll tell you, is going to be a little different for a lot of us. Because every single one of us in this room and every single one of us listening online is a different member of the body of Christ. Each with a different ability, each with a different gift, each with a different focus. But Paul's letter to Titus today, it really focuses on more of the uh, things that good works are not, right? So what I want to do is I want to end uh, by just quickly looking at that list in verse 2. It reads that we are to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to people. In verse 9, it tells us that we are to avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels, disputes about the law, because... They are unprofitable and worthless. And if you look at the second half of verse 8, it explains that avoiding these things are good and profitable for everyone. This is how we are to treat and or not treat all people. This is how we are to behave and not behave to everyone. The good works we are called to live out by avoiding these things, like canceling people, like slandering people, like engaging in foolish debates, the, the good works that we are called to engage in because of good doctrine, the good doctrine that we believe in, these good works should not and cannot be limited to the body of Christ alone. It should not and cannot just be to those who come through these doors to worship our King. It must be for and two, everyone. Mark chapter 2, verse 17 reads, When Jesus heard this, he told them, It's not for those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, the works we are called to engage in is not for the sake of my redemption. I've been redeemed by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The good works that I am called to live out is for the redemption of others. It's so that the beloved of God who don't know yet that they are the beloved of God is so that they might come to realize 
and to know and to proclaim that they are the beloved of God, that they are chosen by the Father in heaven to spend eternity with him and not apart from him. Um, I'm out of time. And I will tell you that I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to dive deeper into the details of what, it, what avoid foolish debates or genealogy or disputes with Allah, what that really potentially means. I, I will mention one thing here. The key concept behind all these things is not that we can't have the debate or that we can't have the discussion about things like, you know, things like what does the Bible teach about how we're to love our fellow image bearers of God who are LGBTQ+, or, or, or that we can't take the time, because we should, that we can't take the time to see what Scripture says about whether God's design is for women to be able to serve as elders and pastors of the church. It, it, it's not, uh, it's not wh whether believers, we should talk about whether believers' baptism is the only way to baptize. We should have those discussions. But the, that's not the point of the list to not have the discussion. The point of this list that Paul is making is that these discussions cannot be in lieu of, cannot be in replacement of good works for all people. See, the paramount to our orthodoxy is not oratory altercations. The paramount to our orthodoxy is orthopraxy. The, the main point that Paul is making to Titus is this. We must strive to not only seek the truth, we must not only strive to meditate on Scripture to get a right understanding of what it is we believe. We need to do that. But, but we also have to take it to the next level. We need to live out that belief every single day and in every single way so that others around us might come to love Christ and live themselves so that others might do the same. Thanks for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit us online at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.